0: Kids for children's church. I want to welcome you to Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You'll find the uh, friendship registers on the side. I'll take them, fill them out, pass them along when they get to the end, pass them back. That way you'll be able to see you snuck into your row this morning and uh, get a cup of coffee between services and, uh, and greet each other. Uh, so please send those along. Special welcome to you if you're visiting with us. Uh, you'll notice inside the uh, worship uh, folder some announcements that pertain to the life of our church, please please read those uh, through. Notice most especially our children's program uh, tonight at 7. I don't need to guilt you into coming. It'll be a great time. Everybody shows up for that, so just be here. It's a time, not so much of our kids to perform. They're not putting on a big performance, but uh, a time for our kids to lead us in a a time of worship. And uh, so we'll participate in that so please come. Christmas Eve service coming up, obviously on the 24th of all time, um, 7.15, uh, that Monday evening. This is a, a time, uh, if you haven't joined us for this service before, it's, um, uh, we read through nine passages of scripture, sing carols related to that, light some candles. But it's a, just a great time for us to come together as a community uh, of believers um, to think and have uh, the scripture read to us and for us to sing. So please come to that. It's a very uh, good time. We, um, there's no child care, so all the kids are with us. and and uh, So it's just a good family time. Uh, for those of you who took an ornament off the tree, the giving tree that's in the narthex, make sure you bring those presents back, hopefully today, um, for that. Uh, also, you'll find an insert uh, in the bulletin. What I call our 5K kids. These are these are kids that were benefited by our uh, 5K race, run, walk that we held uh, last month and raised a few thousand dollars for. So uh, we sent the money there, and uh, these kids, among others, I'm sure, have been blessed by that. We just wanted you to see some faces uh, with that project. Let me ask you to bow with me, please, as we come to the scripture. Father in heaven, and now as we come to this, which is the very word of God, I pray that you would help us. Uh, we have a resistance at times to hearing the truth. Uh, uh, it's difficult to express it even as I think about talking and speaking this truth. So, Father, I pray that you would help all of us. To, to speak, to hear, to listen, to receive from you that which is true, Holy Spirit, take away any resistance that we might have to it. Father, work it deep within us, that we might know the very work of Christ in us. We pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. Turn, please, to Acts and chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I want to read again verses 16 through 34. I say again because we read this last Sunday, but uh, there's still. One more point I wanted to make from it, so um, we'll take it up again this Sunday. Acts in chapter 17, please. Everybody warm? Are you warm enough? I'll just checking. It was 13 degrees when I got here at 5 o'clock this morning. Not in here, it's, uh, but outside. It may not feel much warmer than that in here, but I'm sure it does. It's good. All right. Hear the Word of God. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagites, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now we began this passage last week and and reviewed it and made a point. So let me just deal with that very quickly. Um, Paul, a missionary, early Christian missionary key early Christian missionary, uh, taking this word about being a follower of Jesus, this good news of the coming of this Messiah, the Christ Jesus. Uh, So he takes it out. He finds himself now in Athens. He's alone. His companions are in another city. They haven't yet left there. So he finds himself in this great city of Athens with all these things that could amuse him and entertain him and, 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 and enthrall him. Uh, and, and there he is. He, he sort of walks through the city, takes a tour of the city, um, and uh, he's provoked, it says, the scripture does, in his spirit because of what he sees there. Somewhere between anger and distress, anger and sadness, he's provoked by what he sees. And because what he sees there are all of these idols. And that bothers him not because it's degrading to him but in his mind it's degrading to Christ because Christ isn't being worshipped and there he finds himself in the midst of this place where Christ isn't being worshipped and it provokes him it distresses him it even moves him uh, we could say to a bit of anger and, and there he finds himself now his MO his, 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 his operating procedure here as he comes into a new city um, uh, is, is practiced by Paul in Athens he goes first the synagogues makes a great deal of sense because Paul himself was Jewish he didn't grow up in Jerusalem per se but he was Jewish and so going into the synagogue would be with a group of people who would share at least the same religious heritage as he had and so he would know them they would share the same sacred book uh, what we call the Old Testament the, the scripture as he would call it and so they shared that the same heritage the same understanding at least from this book of who God is. And he could reason with them uh, from this book and from their heritage. Because they would understand the whole storyline of how God had promised to redeem his people, to save his people from their sins. He could begin with creation with them. He could talk about God. He could move then to sin and the fall and, and how all of that happened and how people lost favor with God and how that created all the misery that we see in the world. He would go there and then he would go to the promises and then he would go to how how God had called Abraham and worked through Moses and how God had spoken of David. And all along giving an image of this one who was to come. He was going to be a prophet like Moses. He was going to be a king like David. He was going to be a priest like Aaron. And so you have all of this set up and he could speak to them of that. He could speak of the prophets and what they said concerning this one who was to come. And then he could lay out the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth was this very one, this very Messiah, this Deliverer, this Christ, this King who was to come and deliver his people from their sins so that they could be reunited with God and have a relationship with him and belong to him. And ultimately that all the misery that came from people's alienation from God would be settled and would be solved and all of that. So he could, he could reason with them from the scripture. He could take us all the way through even Advent. He would speak of the birth of Jesus, the angel coming to Mary and Joseph. He could then speak of, of, of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and all that that would mean for them. So so that was very clean, very wise for him to do. It made great sense for him to go to the synagogues in order to bring those people, if you will, up to speed on what the Old Testament scripture spoke of and how Jesus had come and fulfilled all of that and he was the Christ, the Messiah. But there was also people in this city in Athens who didn't share this background of his. Uh, they had various kinds of philosophies and, and various understandings, the Epicureans, as we mentioned, who were pleasure seekers ultimately, who said there is no afterlife you 've got to get it all here, and therefore seek pleasure, minimize your pain. The Stoics who said the gods aren 't personal, but there is some sort of fate which they bring, and circumstances come, and we need to make the best of it in the midst of that and deal with the, 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 and, and play the hand that you 're dealt. And and do that with discipline and, and live the good life in the midst of uh, the circumstances, both some good and some bad, that come into your life. And, and those were their worldviews. And and there were others as well in the midst of Athens because philosophers abounded there. People loved to talk, not unlike a city in which we live. Now, Paul found himself there. So then the question would become, how would he... Approach them. Now you remember last Sunday, we we made one point, simply one point after having worked through the details of all of that. We made one point, and that is, do we, as believers in Christ, share the same heart as Paul? That is to say, do we feel the same provoking in our spirit when God, when Christ is not being worshipped? For me anyway, the thing that, that cut me as I prepared that sermon, as I listened to myself preach it, and as I've reflected on it, was the comment by the missionary to India named Henry Martin, who when asked why he was distressed when Christ was degraded in India, he said, if I had had my eye plucked out, no one would have asked me why I, why I cried, why I felt pain, why it distressed me. Because you would say, well, anybody, whether I plucked out, would be in pain. And he said, you shouldn't have to ask me why I feel pain when Christ is degraded. Because I love him. He's so much a part of me. I so much a part of him. That when he's degraded, it's a very natural thing for me to feel sadness. And so the question for us is, are we that sensitive to these things? Are we that sensitive to Christ being degraded and to... Lift our prayers to God and ask Him that we might be. But today I want to move on and make a, a different point. And that is, when Paul spoke to these people who weren't Jewish, who didn't share his cultural heritage, his religious heritage, who, who were coming from a completely different place, he still shared the gospel with them. But he contextualized it. By that, I don't mean that he changed the gospel to fit them. But he changed him to fit them. All right, The gospel was the same. But he tried to enter into their experience because, you see, any time we bring the gospel to a people, any time we take the gospel to a place, uh, it it must be incarnational. I mean, Jesus came to bring us truth, to reveal God to us, and to, if you will, uh, win our salvation, to achieve it. Uh, But it was incarnational. He had to come in and enter into our lives and as we take the gospel it's us taking this gospel to others really hands-on face-to-face people to people entering into their lives to bring them the truth of the gospel the gospel stays the same but we move in and we enter in to their lives to understand them it's a very complicated thing it's a difficult thing we have to sacrifice our own comforts perhaps and we have to really think it through. What does it mean, this gospel? And how does it hit and apply to these people in their particular lives? Now, of course, it doesn't mean that it isn't confrontational. The gospel always ends up being confrontational. The gospel always ends up cutting through. Paul didn't mince words. He, he did identify with them to some degree by saying, I see that you're religious. We, we share something in common. We have this, this religious bent to us. But that really is about where it it stopped, because he says, I'm putting words into him, but he said, in a sense, the religion that I follow is right, and yours is wrong. He says, you you have this altar to an unknown God. You're so conscious of all the gods that you you, you don't want to miss any, so you even have the unknown ones marked out, but you have no idea who you're worshipping. So let me proclaim to you who God really is. Now, that was a very bold statement, if you can only imagine. He's walking into their lives, and he's saying the thing that that you claim to be so important to you, this religion and this spirituality that you have, that you claim to be so important to you, I'm I'm here to proclaim truth to you. I'm here to proclaim something to you that will cut across what you really believe. Because this God is not the God of the Epicureans. He's not the God of the Stoics. That is to say, he's not as the Stoics define him or the Epicureans define him. He's different than that. And he goes on to say he's different because he's, he's the creator. He's the who, one who made all that is. He's the sustainer of everything that is. He doesn't need us. We need him. He's sovereign over everything. He's the one who puts people where they belong. He makes the boundaries of their lives, if you will. And he's the one who numbers their days He's the very one and he put us in the places he put us so that we would seek him so that we could actually know him. So he isn't aloof and off. He's close to us. He's closer than you can imagine. The problem is that we're blind and we're trying to feel for him but we're missing him. And he says you have a a sense of this even in your own guts. In fact, your own poets have spoken of him. Uh, there have been those among you who have written about Zeus, wrong god, but right idea. That in God, in Him, we we live and move and have our being. They wrote of Zeus, wrong god, wrong understanding, but 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 right concept here. That there is God, and there is one God, and He we are His offspring. And so he says, how silly of it of, of you is it? to to, to try to make an image of him. How could you do that with gold and silver? So he says, I want to proclaim this, this one to you, this God, and I want you to repent. That is, I want you to turn away from following after all of these other gods because it's utterly futile for you to do that because they're not real. I want you to repent, and I want you to turn and follow the true and living God because if you don't, There are deep and eternal consequences. Because whether you want to believe this or not, life goes on beyond this one, and there is a judgment which is to come. And this God is so interested in our relationship with Him, so interested in, 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 in His own glory, that there is a judgment to come. In fact, we're going to be judged by this one who He raised from the dead. So it's that tangible. And we know the one who's going to judge us. He's the one who lives on, this Jesus. And we don't have all the details of how Paul laid that out or all the, all the, all the, uh, the details that he gave to them as he was walking through this. But, but we get the gist of it. And again, we ended last Sunday, as you might remember, by this sense of faith, knowing that this one who is our judge is our Savior. And that's really, really good news. So so Paul contextualizes this, he brings it to them. Uh, he, he does it differently than he does in the synagogue. He doesn't, he doesn't quote chapter and verses he did in the synagogue, doesn't necessarily walk through, but but he identifies with them and this and he begins with God. He has this sense that, that, that there's something in us that we suppress it, the scripture says, that we have this sense about God. And so he begins there, not to prove who God is, but he he comes to them. And Paul I shared this about his life and other places how he contextualizes the gospel for instance in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 9 uh, verse 19 he puts it like this he says for though I am free from all I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law Uh, The context of this passage in 1 Corinthians is is living in the context of a culture that's not Christian. Uh, In Corinth, uh, there were those who had become Christians, there were those who hadn't. And yet, in the city itself, there was still a lot of worship of idols and all of that. And so, one of the things that Paul had to deal with or talk to that particular church about was how do you live in the midst of this? What's essential to being a Christian? What isn't essential to being a Christian? And how are we to to live in the midst of this culture? And one of the big questions, not a big question for us, one of the big questions was, well, should they eat meat that had been offered to idols? Now, it still happens. Uh, Some time ago, Karen and I had some... Pakistani friends in another city in which we lived back in Denver in those days and and once uh, they invited us over on a Friday night to eat goat. Now, I said no, not because that goat had been sacrificed that day, which it had at the mosque. It was goat uh, that was my reasoning for saying no to that um, so I just didn't I, I don't know did we eat the goat? I can't remember. They gave it to us. Oh, that was good. So we didn't eat the goat. Uh, did, any, did we give the goat to anybody? No, we just disposed of the goat. But anyway, but so it still happens. But but obviously not as prevalent. But but the point is, what do we do in the context of a community that clearly is worshiping idols or other gods or degrading? Christ, by not worshiping him, how is it do we interact in the midst of that? And Paul has a two-pronged attack as he goes through this, and I'm not going to work our way through these passages necessarily, but if, if you're familiar with this piece in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, where Paul says, on the one hand, you need to be conscious of your fellow believers and their conscience. And so if they'd be uptight with you eating this meat offered to idols, then don't eat it. And if they wouldn't be uptight with you eating meat offered to these idols, if they didn't know about it, then eat it. It's not that big a deal. Because Paul said, we're free. The idols aren't real. And food is a good gift from God. But not everybody knows this same freedom. So the point is, you're free then to love. It's not about your rights. It's not about what you have a right to do or don't have to do. It's really about helping them it's really about loving them obviously staying true to christ and so paul said things like this in first corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 he writes uh, but take care that this right of yours that is to eat that this right of yours uh, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak and so he says it's not about your rights it's about helping them Then verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He says, you have a right to eat meat, yes. But if it hurts somebody, don't eat it. Because it's not about you. Because you belong to another. It's about Christ. And you're glorifying, and you're relating well, if you will, to him. And then... The, the second, uh, then in, in chapter 10 of verse 23, he puts it like this. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then he sums it finally in verse 31 of chapter 10 by saying, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do. I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Because you see, the second aspect of this, he says, listen, I become all things to all people so that some will be saved, so that some will be able to hear the gospel. And so whatever it is that's keeping me from sharing the gospel with them, whatever it is from having them really hear it, if I can possibly do away with it, then why wouldn't I? And so in Athens, he see, goes to them. He doesn't have to thump his Bible in a good way, I say that. He can simply share with them the very truth, understanding who they are, thinking, how can I best help them see it? How can I best help them get it without compromising the gospel? And of course, he doesn't compromise the gospel because he goes right at the very things that are difficult for them, things which they have Denied. And notice again in this, this passage, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says he's free and he's free so that he may win. He says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win them. Gentiles, a Gentile in order to win them. Which would mean while he was with Jewish people of his own heritage, he would follow whatever customs that they had if it didn't degrade the gospel. So he'd follow their food laws without really much concern. In fact, you remember that he even had his young friend Timothy circumcised in order to take him with him. Now, Paul knew that circumcision was nothing. I don't know how he convinced Timothy of that, but that circumcision was nothing uh, theologically any longer had been in the old co- the old covenant, but now not necessary. But yet he did it. Why? So that Timothy could become all things to all people. He could become a Jew to the Jews. And so it would never be a question. It would just be a non-issue for them. For the Gentiles it would be a non-issue because they didn't care about circumcision. And so Paul would undergo those things and those non-issues. So when he was with a Gentile he wouldn't necessarily follow the food laws because they didn't care. It wasn't a big deal. Now, in America, you see, we have some difficulties as believers in Christ because we're labeled already. And people have preconceived notions about who we are and and what Christianity is. And so in some ways, we we have to bend over backwards, perhaps, to, 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 to show them the essence of Christianity. That the essence of Christianity is not a political belief. And it's not really necessarily a lifestyle, first and foremost. Now, it leads and informs both our politics and our lives but it isn't simply being against homosexuality or against abortion or for creation or whatever issue people may relate directly to Christianity it's about following Christ and if we only present ourselves on these other what we may call presenting issues it may well confuse people about what, what, what Christianity is we might be able to convince people to be creationists, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're followers of Christ. There's all kinds of people who are creationists who aren't followers of Christ. That isn't unique to us. It is in the way we understand it, but but it isn't unique to us. It doesn't make someone a Christian. Or even being pro-life doesn't make someone Christian. I know pro-life people who aren't believers in Christ. Now, we hold the same view, but transcends Christianity. The same thing is true about homosexuality or sexuality issues. I know unbelievers, people who aren't Christians, who believe that marriage should be defined as between a man and a woman. Period. Yet they're not believers in Christ. And while we concur and agree and hug and all those kinds of things about that issue, still, I must share Christ with them. And so we have to be careful not, not to confuse these issues as being Christian. Do you follow me? I don't want to get nasty letters this week, all right? Um, I don't really care. You can send me nasty letters. <laughs> I'm a file. Um, but... Uh, and we must understand, too... And America is different. We've been talking about this now for the last number of years, I suppose. But the United States is different than it used to be. This is, you know, Francis Schaeffer, 30 years ago, told us we were a post-Christian nation. Nobody believed him. Or if they did, they didn't really know what that meant. And now we know what that means. Because we have a whole generation of people with what our uh, sociologist friends are saying have no Christian memory, which means they have no connection in their mind to Christianity. Uh, They didn't grow up, in a sense, like I did. I was sharing with a group of college students a number of months ago, and I said, you know, this isn't your dad's America. And I was thinking of my dad. They were thinking of me. Uh, (laughs) Still getting used to this old, getting old thing. But... um, uh, but it isn't. You know, I grew up uh, in a situation, as I've shared before, and some of you who are my age understand this, where in public school we read the Bible every morning. I learned the 23rd Psalm. I learned the, 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 the uh, Lord's Prayer. I learned the Ten Commandments all in my school. I learned it in church too, but I learned it in my elementary school. Uh, I didn't know anybody who didn't know somebody related to the church. Uh, and when people thought about God, they thought about going to church that was their instinct even if they had been away from the church they came back to the church because there was some Christian memory when we talk about the generations coming up today and we say someday they'll come back to the church no, they didn't start out in the church they have no connection to church they don't know who Joseph was they don't know who Abraham was they don't know who Moses was unless they saw the cartoon right Uh, there's no Christian memory They don't know about Jesus. You know the story, uh, and it may be apocryphal, although I've read it in two different books, but that doesn't mean somebody didn't make it up. But if nobody made it up, I mean, if it isn't true and someone made it up, it's still a great illustration. The illustration about the man going into the jewelry store to buy a a, a cross for his his wife, uh, a little necklace, that would have never happened in the first century, by the way any more than we would go in and buy a necklace with an electric chair on it. But, um, but for us, it's a different kind of symbol. Uh, and the jeweler, young girl behind the counter, purportedly asked him, do you want the plain one or do you want the one with the little man on it? Um, with no clue. No Christian memory. No idea. And that's the America in which we live. Now, I'm really not saying that the old America is better than this one. The old America had its own issues about thinking that you were a Christian just because you had a Christian memory, just because you had some connection to church, just because you uh, had some connection to America and therefore you were a Christian. There was a whole different culture in which to, to do ministry. And we still have a semblance of that even today. But this growing proportion of our population that has no Christian memory. A man by the name of Michael Wolff, and some of you are familiar with this quote from from the work of Tim Keller, but Michael Wolff in New York uh, Times Magazine in February of 2001 put it like this, and he's not a believer of this, Michael Wolff. He was writing about media. He says, We're at a fundamental schism in America, in, in American culture, political, and economic life. There's a quicker growing, economically vibrant, but also more fractious and more difficult to manage, morally relativistic, urban oriented, culturally adventuresome, sexually polymorphous, there's one for you, an ethnically diverse nation. And there's a smaller, small town, nuclear family, religiously oriented, white centric, other America which makes up for its distinguishing, diminishing cultural and economic force with its predictability and stability. Now, what he was doing was analyzing the U.S. in terms of media, in terms of advertising, in terms of what movies would make it, what TV shows would make it, and all of that. And so very astutely, he says, the portion of America that's growing isn't the portion of America that many of us, you and I, identify with. And he says the only thing that makes this smaller proportion of, 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 of stable families, mom and dad at home and all of that, uh, helpful for media is that it's predictable and stable. We know if we throw it out there that we'll get X number of dollars from that group. This other group is more difficult to define, but yet it's growing and it's bigger and it's going to be a larger proportion. And that's the group of people that if we're going to be productive in the kingdom, that's the group that we have to learn about. That's the group that we have to take this gospel to. And they're not like us. In the same way that when Paul was in Athens, he was talking to people a, a group of people not like himself. They didn't grow up in synagogue. They didn't grow up with all this stuff. They didn't grow up knowing who Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David and, and Daniel and all these people were. He couldn't build on that per se. He had to learn about them, and we do too. Now, in a very helpful article, and I'm not going to have time to really hash all of this, but a very helpful article, Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian minister in uh, New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, has said that every culture has defeater beliefs. That is, they have beliefs that defeat Christianity on its face and in our culture as he's lived in New York City and gotten to know this increasing uh, percentage of population in the US he's saying that there's these defeater beliefs And, and some of these I'm just going to read them to you some of these will will resonate with you because you've held them and had to have got overcome them in your own life in order to come to faith. Some of you still struggle with them, and some of you know people that you're talking about these things with even now. But a defeater belief is a belief the, that 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 seems so true to the culture that that therefore Christianity can't be true. They're just so intuitive, so right that if. That, that everybody holds them. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. And again, these have been circulating throughout history. But the first is is this one. He talks about the defeater belief of, of other relig- religions. He says, Christians seem to greatly overplay the differences between their faith and all the other ones. Though millions of people in other religions say they've encountered God and have built marvelous civilizations and cultures and have had their lives and characters changed by their experience of faith, Christians insist that only they go to heaven, that their religion is the only one that's right and true. The exclusivity of this is breathtaking. It also appears to many to be a threat to culture and international peace. They're saying, listen, if you Christians are right, then this world can't can't go on as it is. Because most of us then are wrong out there. And, and how can it be that these civilizations and cultures seem to be so good, and yet you're saying, no, that... That really isn't true. But, but that is prevalent. People say, that must be true. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. Now, Of course, to say that means that you have some sense of what is right and what is wrong. <laughs> You're saying that Christians are wrong and everybody else has some sense of right to them. Uh, and of course, um, the exclusivity of Christianity isn't our view. But it's the view of this one, Jesus, and we're so tied to him that everything revolves around him that we need to continue to put him out there, not us. We need to continue to point back to him. When Paul was in Athens and he was speaking of this one, this judgment that is to come, he brought it back to Christ. This is the one who has the right to judge, this one who was raised from the dead, this one who conquered and thus ascended. That one, he has the right to judge brought it back to Jesus their argument wasn't with Paul but their argument was with Jesus and this exclusivity claim that we have is, is because we, we say there's only one real problem and so who can, who can really solve this problem the problem that, that we've offended God who's going to deal with that And this one Jesus second defeater belief as he puts it is, a, is, a, is, is an old one But one that still hangs around these days, and that is the problem of evil and suffering. If God really is good, as Christians say that He is, and if God really is all powerful, as we say that He is, then why is there all this evil in the world? Why doesn't He stop it? If He was good, He'd put an end. If He was good and powerful, wouldn't He put an end to all this evil and all this suffering? And of course, there's part of us that goes, yes, and He will. He he really will. But he's wiser than we are, and so there is a purpose for this suffering. And and, and to help us to see that, he's entered into our pain and suffering through Jesus. He's not ignoring it. He's not aloof from it. His very own son has experienced it and knows it. Another defeater of belief is the record of Christians. When Christians make the papers, it's almost always bad. And they look at our lives and they look at the lives of the clergy and they say, how is it that you can put yourselves up? Oh. And since you keep sinning and messing up, and then we look at through history and see wars that have even been influenced by those who have said they're Christians, then how could we ever think that this is better than anything else? And again, we resonate and we say, we don't put ourselves up, we really are sinners. But the greatest critique on the record of Christians is the Bible itself. That it testifies against our sin. And so the reason that even believers say, yes, that's wrong when we do that, is because the scripture itself is what testifies against us. So the point isn't to remove Christianity but make us deeper Christians, deeper followers of Christ. There is the defeater belief of an angry God. God just couldn't be filled with wrath. But of course, we understand that the wrath of God isn't a knee-jerk reaction. It isn't him taking out his anger on someone. It's his reasonable, rational response to that which is eternally offensive and offensive against the one true and holy God. And of course, we know that Jesus has come. So the wrath of this God would not need to be upon us, but upon his very, very Son. And then there's the last one. There's others here. But the last one is this claim that the Bible really is the Word of God. How can any one book be the very Word of God? And of course, we simply give it to them to read. Say, read through this, think through this. How does it testify to you as a myth, as truth? Because we know that it's the very work of the Spirit that opens our eyes, enables us to see. The culture in which we live requires that we love them in it to the degree that we're willing to set aside our own biases and our own rights to the degree that we're willing to take a look at the gospel and say, what is essential here? And to be able to share it with them. Not in arrogance, but in love. Not in judgment, but with compassion. And we have the picture of All of that right here. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in honor of me. And as you're doing it, have your minds upon me. Think about me. And in the same way he took the cup. And again after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me as often the apostle says as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what we must grab a hold of what we must be able to share in the midst of this culture in which we live, people who know nothing about this, is to be able to relate to them what they do know and bring them to Christ. We do know that things are a mess. We do know that throughout history, things have been a mess. And nobody has a good explanation for that and why it doesn't really get better other than we see we play a part in that. Nobody wants to take personal identification with that, but, but everybody sees that people are really hurting everything from each other to the animals to the ozone layer. And when we come into the midst of this and say that God made it good, he made us to be in his image, and his image is love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a loving community. And we're to be in that image, and we're to love as he loved it, and he made us so to love, and he made more than one of us so that we could love each other and love Him. And we are to be, as He is, a happy society. But something happened. And what happened was that that we left that happy society. And we said, we don't want to be under that happy society, the one who has created us, to be love. We want to go on our own, each to be our own God, the one to determine What we believe is good and what we believe is evil. And and so we're going to determine that. And so we have populated this whole earth with little gods who want to rule their own kingdoms. And so there's a clash all the time. There's clashes between husbands and wives. There's clashes between parents and children. There's clashes between teachers and students. There's clashes between bosses and employees. There's clashes, clashes between nations. There's clashes between classes There's clashes all over the place of people and it's created great misery. All because we're rebelling against the one who is our creator, who's laid before us how it is that we're to live in love. And not only that, that our hearts are now hardened in that. And if you don't believe that, just study history. We're not getting better. The same problems that exist today have existed. There's nothing new under the sun. And so, how, what is the solution to all of that? Well, well, God promised that He, to glorify Himself, to show how great He was, was going to, 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 to solve this problem Himself by sending one to redeem. It had been talked about through history. But this one has indeed come, this very one Jesus. And this very one Jesus has come. And He's been for us our representative before God to live for us, to do all that we haven't, couldn't, didn't. And he's worth us all, because he's the very son of God. And he's the one who's come as our representative, as our substitute. For justice to be settled, our rebellion must be dealt with. And this one Jesus dealt with it in love. He took it. Voluntarily, he took the wrath of God upon himself. And now comes to say, trust me. Believe in me. Identify with me. Turn away from everything that's futile that you've been following. Turn away from the stuff that human beings have, have been following all of these generations. And it has really solved the problem. And turn away from all of that and come now. And settle your own life In your heart upon me. Trust who I am. Trust what I've done. Become yoked to me. And Jesus says, if you come to me, you're weak. I'll give you rest. I'll give you strength. I'll give you help. Follow me. You see, that's what we bring into the midst of this culture. And we bring that, not in weakness but in strength weakness because it's just words that we're saying but the strength because it's comes packed by the spirit of God and we learn that this gospel this good news is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe and just as Paul experienced some believe some don't that's not our doing that sets up to God ours is to skillfully, yet winsomely, kindly, yet pointedly, lay it out for people to hear. And Jesus says, for us now as we come, to be strengthened with that message, to be strengthened with that truth. He says, now as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim my death until I come, meaning... You're going to proclaim it. You're going to do what Paul did. Paul proclaimed it in the midst of these people. He did it in the midst of people who didn't believe. We're proclaiming it, hopefully, in the midst, at least to a large extent, of people who do believe, to ourselves even. And Jesus said that he'll meet us around this table because though we believe this bread and juice is always bread and juice, and this, you know, da 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 We believe he's here. And that he calls us to himself. And he says, I'm going to be as close to you as this bread and this juice is in you. And I will strengthen you and I will keep you. So we know that we're free. We know that it's not about us. We know that it's not about our rights. It's about him. And then he says, now I want you to go out. I want you to go out and and contextualize this. I want you to go out and and incarnate this I want this message I want to be your life into the very lives of people let's pray Father in heaven pray for me and for us that around this table that you will strengthen our faith Father within our hearts have resided defeater beliefs in fact some of those are still there in some measure. We wonder about why it is that Christians fall as we do and why it is that historically we've, even those claiming the name of Christ, have floundered and erred and sinned. And Father, we we read the Bible, we want to believe it, and yet still in the back of our minds is, how can you be sure this is really the word of God? Father, we see all the suffering in the world and we wish it could be changed and we sometimes think if we were God we would change it and so why don't you? But I pray even today as we come to Jesus, come around this table, that you satisfy all of those with truth even as Jesus lives within us and that we're able to go from this place sharing this truth the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that will enable us to experience the very presence of Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of Christ, it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who believe and trust in him, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy and all those who believe and depend upon him and receive him as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and all those who desire therefore to follow him. That's true for you. Let me invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, And allowed to resonate in your own mind. Jesus is real. This is real. He is the very Son of God. Please come. Pray with me, Father in Heaven. Our Lord Jesus is worthy. And so we pray that as a people we would... Bring glory to Him. Uh, Father, by sharing Him in this culture in which we live. So be with us, I pray. Help us to live out in such a way our lives that people would see Christ. That We wouldn't have to use words all the time, but they could see life in us and see Christ in us. Father, various ones... uh, experiencing difficulty in our congregation uh, that we lift to you that christ would be evident to them and in them and through them we pray uh, for those in the military who are serving even now for chris tharp for jeff mckinney andy coleman reed brown teal Mitz, those who related to us in a very special way so father we pray for each of them to keep them safe to give them great purpose and father that their lives would be lived in such a way uh, that Christ would be shared through them. Father, we pray for Don Adam on the loss of his dad, and we pray, even as he uh, attends that uh, funeral this week in Canada, that you would be with him. Thank you for the opportunity Don had to see his dad this past summer. So, Father, we're grateful for your kind providences in those regard. In that regard, Father, for Caden White uh, as he uh, recovers from cancer surgery. Father, for this little boy, we pray that you would grant grace to him, heal him, uh, cause him to know you deeply, even at his young age. Uh, For Shannon and Darren, his parents, Fred and Peggy, grandparents, we pray for them, Father, that you would grant grace to them to minister to that little boy and to love him deeply. Father, for Janice Edmondson's uh, niece and her husband, and most especially their... uh, Nine-year-old son, Will, who has cancer, Father, we pray for his healing as well, for Bill Grubbs as he continues to heal from his surgery. And, Father, there are others, countless others, I suppose, among us who are struggling with various things in relationships, in finances, in health, those who struggle even with faith, God. We pray for each. And, Lord Jesus, you would be very close to them. That the truth of this gospel would be known to them deeply. Father, for those who minister out of our congregation, uh, those at KU, we give you uh, great thanks for, uh, for their life, for Jeff and Rebecca Burgess as they minister on campus with Campus Crusade for Christ. Father, for them we pray for your blessing upon them. Father, we ask too for your blessing upon Dan and Carol Lague as they work in uh, Kansas City and throughout the world for Campus Crusade. And Father, you be with Dan and his health. Continue to heal him from his cancer. So, Father, be with us. Help us to live, to love, so that people might know Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to our benediction this morning is this one we use during our Advent season: "Christ has come. Christ is coming again." Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.